listeners, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Jahal is joined by Ali Kazmi. Ali is a Governor General's award-winning documentarian and associate professor at York University's School of Arts, Media, Performance, and Design. Together, Am and Ali discuss the filmmaking and research process of his various films, including his latest, Beyond Extinction, A Sinaik's Resurgence, as well as the effort it takes to maintain autonomy as a filmmaker. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We are very lucky to have documentarian and filmmaker Ali Kazemi with us. Welcome, Ali. Thank you, Am. It's wonderful to be here. We had a chance to be in conversation last year at the DOCSA Film Festival where you were screening your uh, latest documentary and, and had a masterclass. It was wonderful to be in, in conversation with you. I'll just start with you maybe introducing yourself a little bit. I'm a documentary filmmaker, but I also have done a little bit of work in, in video installation. I teach. I'm a professor at York University. I teach film production. I came to Canada in 83. So this is, this August will be 40 years since I came here. I initially came as a film student on exchange from India to York and York had set up a film program, a a graduate film program in India at a university in Delhi, the Jamia Millia Islamia University. After a year, I was given the option to stay on and ended up actually finishing a second undergraduate degree in film production and then worked as a documentary film, independent documentary filmmaker pretty much till I joined York in 2006. So almost 20 years I worked as an independent filmmaker and then decided that it was just a really hard go at it to, to make the kinds of films that I want to make and to get funding for them and to get to earn a living wage in that process was challenging. So I decided I would I would teach at York and I've been teaching since and I but I've continued my practice as a filmmaker. What first drew you to making films? Like even as a student deciding to pursue film is something you were always in, in love with? I was in love with film, but I'd never considered filmmaking as an option. What had drawn me was photography and particularly documentary photography. And I was self-taught. I learned processing and printing as a teenager. And by the time I got to university, after high school, I didn't know what what I wanted to do. So I did a general degree in, in science, in physics, chemistry and math. And then I joined a a college in part of Delhi University, St. Stephen's College, which had a wonderful photographic society, a long-standing photographic society. And that pushed me to new, pushed my understanding of photography and increased my practice. By the time I finished university, I realized that I was also doing radio. I was the, the All India Radio, which is the equivalent of CBC in uh, here, I had a youth channel called Yovani and I was doing, in English, I was doing a short extended feature reports on current affairs. I had my own music show in, um, in sort of pop music, pop and rock is what I played. But I decided I wanted to combine the two of them. I was inspired by a film that was shot here actually in Vancouver 
a film called A Time to Rise by Anand Patwardhan. He was just in Vancouver about a year ago visiting Martin Gottfried and right. Patricia and, and yeah. did a public event here. I met yeah. him very briefly. Yeah. yeah, and so Anand, right from that time, has been an inspiration and, and now a dear friend. So when I saw Time to Rise, suddenly I was, I was very excited because here was film being used in a way that I hadn't been exposed to before. And what I had been exposed to in terms of documentary was the f- theatrically watching films division of India, which is the equivalent of the National Film Board here, would show 10 to 15 minute short docs before every feature. Uh, some of them were interesting, but most of them were were about nation building. But then here was Anand's film, which was strong, oppositional, dissenting, and it I still remember that moment of, of, of excitement. I heard about this this graduate program being set up. The only thing in Delhi that offered remotely of a sense of film training was an advertising school, the Indian Institute of Mass Communication, which was a very prestigious program. In the first term, I realized that this was not for me. <laughs> I was constantly challenging and questioning my my professors, you know, on the ethics of why are we selling sugar drinks to rural India where there's many people don't have enough to eat. And they, one of them finally said to me, Kazmi, what are you doing here? And that was a really good question. I did manage to do a, a month-long internship in, in a non-profit that was making documentaries. And then this program came along that was set up by York. So I jumped ship and that's how I, I got into film. You know, then I was exposed to the work of, while I was at film school, Mira Nair had come from uh, with her first documentary called So Far From India. Actually, it was her first feature documentary. And of course, over there, I, we were shown a bunch of NFB films. When I came here, I was exposed to the work of Alani Sobamswen, Paul Cowan, Donald Britton, and my passion for documentary just grew. And now your arrival into Canada of, you know, the early 80s, 83, 84, what were your thoughts coming from India and landing in a place like Toronto in that in that time? You know, one of my colleagues at York says that race was a concept for him in India, but as soon as he arrived in Canada, he started living race. And that's that's pretty much true for me, literally from the moment I, I landed you know, my colleague and I had come on student visas. There were these student visas stuck in our passports from the Canadian High Commission. Our professor was waiting to pick us up outside. And we had letters from the university, which we handed them. And and the scholarship was worth several thousand dollars. So we were taken in for secondary interrogation. You know, it was a tw- it was kind of surreal because we were expecting some kind of a... This was the last thing I expected. <laughs> and one of the questions I remember him asking, so, well, how do I know you haven't got this visa in some back street of Delhi? Or where is that money? Which suitcase is the money for the scholarship? And then he finally said, the only reason I'm letting you into my country is because you speak such good English. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a that was interesting but you know 83 84 there was still a residue of the deep anti south asian period 
that Toronto had gone through and, and Vancouver as well. This was a period of Paki bashing, which had been, the, the term had been imported from the UK, where the far right led by Enoch Powell had been pushing against the exclusion of South Asians. It was a very isolating experience initially. There were a few friends I made who are friends till today. But then that initial experience led me and my colleague to explore issues of race and belonging. Now, what were some of the first projects you got involved in after you finished school at York? You know, it was a difficult time. I graduated in 87. I was still on a student visa and then it took another two years. I had a work permit uh, for a couple of years and I only got my landed papers, my permanent residency in 89. So those two years were were a bit challenging because I couldn't access funding, couldn't apply for projects since I was deemed, you know, I wasn't Canadian or a permanent resident. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I decided that, so I had voraciously watched Canadian television as a way and listened to to CBC as a way of beginning to understand the country. And particularly on television, I was struck by these deep stereotypes of people had of the so-called third world and that were, you know, pushed consciously and unconsciously in the reporting on television. And it was this narrative of hapless victims in the third world who have, who cannot comprehend what's happening to them and they are looking to the West for answers. And it's the West that is ultimately the savior. So a friend of mine in India, Ashish Kothari, who was one of the co-founders of an environmental group called Kalpriksh, which still exists today. They had done an incredible walk along the Narmada River. They had walked over 1,200 kilometers from the source of the river to its to the point where it finally meets the Arabian Sea. And they had uncovered this largely unknown project called the Narmada Valley Development Project, which was going to create three large dams, 30 medium dams, and 300 small dams. And this entire project, if completed, was going to displace millions of people. So what was interesting was that Kalpriksh was an environmental group, but I got excited by the idea that environmentalism for them included people. It wasn't just about forests and, and conservation and... and uh, so in 1990, I went back to India and I met Ashish and he said, there's this, uh, the leader of the movement, Medha Patkar is visiting. Why did you come and meet her? So I said, okay, I, I, I was excited. I met her and <laughs> she said, she said, are you really interested? I said, yes. And I've read, this is what I've read up. And, you know, she's an old friend. She said, well, if you're really interested, come with me tonight. So, <laughs> so I had a few hours to to go back to to my sister's place, pack up, and off I went with Medha. And I spent two weeks with her crisscrossing the valley. And it was a transformative experience. It convinced me that this is what I wanted to make a film on. So I remember coming back. There was no time to raise money. And I decided to add some savings. And I rented a camera, uh, which was a high eight camera, professional high eight camera, a format that had not been tested, but promised broadcast standard. And I broke the camera apart to smuggle it in. 
I convinced the customs officers that these high eight tapes were actually audio cassette tapes. They look like just slightly bigger than audio cassette tapes. Hired a crew and we arrived on Christmas Day in in the Narmada Valley and we'd been told that there was going to be a peace march. There was going to be a protest march that was going to walk from the middle of the submergence zone of one of the large dams called the, the Sardar Sarovar Dam. And they were going to walk over 100 kilometers from the middle of the submergence zone to the dam site. And they assured me this is going to take 10 days. So I'd come prepared for 10 days. Well, it took five weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and I came back with all this footage. The reason I wanted to do this film was, uh, and the film is called Narmada, A Valley Rises, because it, I was trying to create an alternative narrative to the narrative that I saw in Canadian television. And, and I felt that as someone who grew up in India, now living in Canada, I could bridge that. And, you know, certainly my understanding of what was happening in India was had also radically shifted by my experience in Canada, but also the Canadian experience and its treatment of Indigenous peoples over here. So from the time I arrived to the time I went to shoot this film, my worldview had been highly politicized and, and, and engaged. That film took another three and a half years to make, and it premiered at TIFF in 1994. And since then, what I've been trying to do is to make films that because it's so hard to make films, <laughs> I keep telling my students, you know, you have to be really committed to an idea. You have to be absolutely passionate because you're going to be tested about your faith and what you want to do at every stage. You'll hear no more than you'll hear yes. And each time you, you hear no, it will raise doubts and it'll raise questions whether you're doing the right thing or not. So your commitment has to be, in a way, absolute. So, you know, I've made films that deal with, with race in different ways in Canada. And my practice has been to, to look at race archives, which I fell in love with while researching some archival footage for Narmada and the, the migrant experience. And I asked myself, OK, so I've done this film in India. I don't necessarily want to do another film there. I want to explore what's happening in Canada around race. And there was not a lot of work being done in that time. And the reason there was not a lot of work, lot of work being done is that there were very few film, documentary filmmakers of color from the mid-80s to the mid-90s. And all of them who were trying to do this work were facing all kinds of barriers. These were not stories that were easy to convince broadcasters to, to come on board and the broadcaster is key because they then, it then triggers other funding and other support. That's what I was committed to doing. Um, I'm going to ask you about your film Shooting Indians, a journey with Jeffrey Thomas. You screened uh, a little bit during our conversation last year. And how did you start that project or how did that come about? That started in, in film school, actually. So it was a project that uh, I did that in my second year. And again, every year we thought we were going to go back. So this was a project I was going to take back with me to India. And I wanted to make something about Canada. And I didn't want to make, I didn't want to duplicate what my Canadian colleagues who had gone to India on exchange had done. You know, coming back with cliched images of rag pickers, slums, cows on streets, this kind of very superficial, visual, stereotypical image of the margins of India. Um, 
I had been really quite shocked by the position of Indigenous peoples in Canada. So I, I said, okay, I want to make a film about this. You know, the responses from my colleagues pushed me even more. I remember some of my classmates making comments, sort of racist, stereotypical comments about Indigenous peoples and, and how one could never work with them and all kinds of stuff. And, and <laughs> that just fueled my commitment to, to do something. But I didn't know where to begin. So I thought I'd start by reading and then having conversations. So homelessness, Indigenous homelessness was something I thought I wanted to do. So I went to a soup kitchen in in, uh, in Toronto. There was a, a place set up called Council Fire, set up by an Anishinaabe elder. And when I called her up, she said, OK, you really want to do this? I said, yes. She said, well, why don't you come and serve soup then? So I went to the soup kitchen, I served soup, and then I would sit and have conversations with people. And I quickly realized I, I just didn't have time and the depth of understanding to do this any justice. But there was an indigenous magazine, a wonderful magazine, short-lived, unfortunately, called Sweetgrass, that had been starting to publish out of Toronto. And in one of the issues was this portfolio by a young, self-described urban Iroquois photographer, Jeffrey Thomas. And I was so excited. I still remember that moment because for two reasons. One, the way he was using documentary photography was completely different from the classical sense that I had, I had learned looking at American and European photographers and some Indian photographers. His work was was unique in terms of its composition and what the compositions were trying to say. And he was also working with diptychs, these juxtapositions. So I finally tracked him down and had a conversation. And he he was about four years older than me. And we were we were young and he was quite surprised that I had sought him out because he said, you know, I'm I'm just just starting off. Why why would you want to make a film on me? And that it was a good question. So I've described the first part to you. The second thing was I could relate to him as a photographer. So we could we could talk about photography. And I was interested in his approach. What he was trying to do was to challenge the visual stereotypes of Indigenous people that really, in, in photographically, emerged out of, particularly out of the work of iconic American photographer Edward Sheriff Curtis. Now, Curtis had done a multi-volume set of books called The North American Indian, and he'd made a commitment to himself that he was going to document the traditional way of life in the American West and, and actually the Canadian West before colonization, before indigenous people became modernized and, and, and therefore their, their, their culture vanished. So he, he would pose people and you know, he's working with very slow shutter speeds, old cameras, large plates. So people had to sit very still. So he would he would select his uh, his people who had tremendous character and a book had come out at the same time in in eighty four that unearthed before and after images of Curtis's own negatives where it was seen that he had you know if he took a uh, if he took a portrait of two men sitting in a teepee dressed in in their traditional clothes but there was an alarm clock in between them. So Curtis would erase that out right? because it wasn't supposed to be there. This was These were supposed to be pre-contact images. And then it was further revealed that he used the same headdress, for example. He, he carried costumes with him and put on headdresses on people or asked them to wear the same clothes. 
And so Curtis was being denounced. Jeff was part of that denunciation and he was trying to challenge those Curtis's images by doing his own before and after with powwow dancers. And he would photograph powwow dancers in their ordinary clothes, you know, leaning against their cars. And then the next image would be them in their full powwow regalia, sort of looking like, almost like the Curtis-like images, but shot radically differently with with completely non-traditional compositional style. And so we went, we started working on this film. Unfortunately, Jeff's personal life fell apart and he left Toronto. So I was left with a partially finished film, but it was I was shooting on 16 millimeter, so I held on to the negative, moved several times. And then I met Jeff's son, Bear Thomas, who told me that his dad was working in the National Archives. And I said I was going, going there for some research. So I met Jeff and I showed him the cut of the film that I had done till then. And I documented it, which is a moment in the film itself. And he was kind, of course, he's, we're, we're both older, he's more established. And we decided to pick up the film again. But he said, you know, I was always concerned about this being about me. I, I just don't like this focus solely about me. I said, so why don't we take this approach about where it's a dialogue between us? So it, it is a dialogic approach. It's the first film where I started using my own voice and locating myself. So I locate myself and, and I locate myself as in a way as a naive interlocutor where I, I mention many moments in the film, for example, when Jeff and I went to First Nations for the, uh, the Six Nations Reserve, his reserve for the first time, which is in Brantford, Ontario. I remember looking for totem poles <laughs> because there were so many, to- there, are, there are in public places in Toronto, there's at least half a dozen totem poles. And I remember Jeff turning to me and very patiently explaining that totem poles are not part of, they're only on the Pacific coast. <laughs> so I felt embarrassed, but I included all those moments in the film as part of my own learning through this experience. And that's how the film came about. So we we followed powwow dancers. We visit Jeff's great aunt, who was an inspiration to him. We visited Alert Bay, where I discovered that Edward Curtis had photographed that community. And in, in 1991, I had shot Vancouver filmmaker, Métis filmmaker, Loretta Todd. I had shot part of a film called Forgotten Warriors about Native war veterans. The production manager was Bob Cranmer, also a filmmaker. She was from Alert Bay. And I called up I called up Barb and I said, is there anyone in your community who remembers Edward Curtis? She said, oh, Ali, my great aunt, she's nearly 100 years old, so you better come now. And so off Jeff and I went literally within, within a month. So that's how that film came about. And what's interesting is that in 2019, I got the Governor General's Award. And Jeff is a good friend. So I called up Jeff and I said, I'm not supposed to share this, but, you know, I'm, I'm coming to Ottawa. But that's where he lives for the Governor General's Award. He laughed and he said, well, I'm not supposed to tell this to you either, but I've, I'm also getting the award. <laughs> so, so we were, a few months later, we were in Rideau Hall looking at ourselves and just laughing, thinking we could never have imagined this. The first time when we met at the at the Native Friendship Center in Toronto in 1984, that 35 years later, we'd be 
in, here in Rideau Hall getting this this award. Yeah, it's a really memorable part of that film where you're showing images, and I think it's from Edward Curtis's In the Land of the Headhunters, and the person who you're describing was almost 100. She she was a young girl in in the film. Yeah, and and so. We showed her the film that Edward Curtis shot in the community, which was called In the Land of the Headhunters. Now, that film is the film that it would eventually inspire Robert Flaherty, who did Nanook of the North. So he learned everything from Curtis, Curtis's experience. And uh, Maggie, when she watched the film, she kept laughing. And she pointed, you know, for her, it was a home movie. She kept pointing out, that's my uncle. That's another relative. And when there was a, her daughter was with us and she disclosed to her daughter in the Kwakwetl language in Kwakwala that Curtis had asked her to pose naked. <laughs> and she kept, she, and she keeps looking at the camera, giving this coy smile and laughing. She says, I was only 17 and her daughter is completely surprised. She says, I've never heard that story before. So, and you know, for Jeff, it was interesting meeting her because it it gave him a deeper understanding of Curtis's approach to people. And the fact that Curtis wasn't forcing anybody to do this, that he had a deep respect. He was trying to to raise money. He was trying to do two things at the same. He was trying to walk a fine line between doing this large mega documentation project but at the same time, making images that would sell to the public. And in fact, in his last, the last book that he does, he stops, he starts documenting people in everyday Western clothes. And by this time, Jeff had evolved in his understanding of Curtis. And that, that moment of meeting Maggie and hearing her talk about her relationship with Curtis, I think solidified his, his view on what was, what was happening between the people who were sitting for those portraits and Curtis. Now, later on, you, of course, did the film around the Komagata Maru continuous journey. And it's remarkable, once again, you know, going into the archives where you, you find the film footage that, you know, people had talked about, but nobody really knew where it was. And just wondering if you could speak a little bit to, you know, your research and how you approach this story. You know, it was taught in history classes when I was in high school. Parents talked about it, but you were trying to tell the, the story in a full sweep in a different way. But how your approach to research allows you to have the luck in finding something like this. And luck it was, Am. <laughs> it wasn't. And, and you know, you said that people had known, nobody, no, nobody knew this footage existed. So for people who don't know, the Komagata Maru was a ship that came to Vancouver in 1914, May 23rd, and was carrying 376 would-be immigrants from India. It was forced to anchor just over a kilometer offshore from, from the harbor, and no one was allowed to disembark. And then there was a court case, and finally 22 people who had lived in Canada before were allowed to disembark, and the rest were turned away. And the court basically asserted that Canada had the right to discriminate against fellow British subjects on the basis of race. And the project was to create a white man's country and hold Canada as a white man's country. And of course, these different strategies were applied for the Japanese and the Chinese before them. So, you know, at that time, there were only a 
just over 25 still photographs of the events. But I, I knew that, you know, motion picture cameras were being used. We just talked about Edward Curtis shooting in the land of the headhunters around the same time. And this was such an important, large event, an epic event in Vancouver that I was convinced somebody, somebody had, must have documented this. I put out a, a little desperate plea to the, there's an international association of moving image archivists and archivists tend to be passionate and very generous. And I got re- responses from a couple of people in, in, in the, around the world. I got four responses and they all said, we've looked for this, but it doesn't exist. Uh, no one's come across it. And, you know, they had, they offered various theories. This was, this was an era when film stock was made out of nitrate and was prone to spontaneously catching fire. Hence the film later on was Kodak. When Kodak developed, created a film called The Safety Film, which referred to that, what happened with nitrate stock. So, and one of the things I did in the film was also to talk about not just the early South Asian experience around that preceded the Komagata Maru and after it, but also what was happening, what was the Japanese experience and what was the Chinese experience. You know, when these histories are taught, they're so compartmentalized. Uh, people who know about the Chinese head tax and the, and the Chinese Exclusion Act know only about that. Or people who know about the Japanese immigration and, and the Japanese uh, internment during the Second World War. It's, so it becomes a very narrowly focused narrative. But when you go through the archive, you realize that the bureaucrats and the, and the gatekeepers were ma- making linkages of all these experiences and they were applying what they had learned from the Chinese to the Japanese and then to the South Asians and working within an imperial context because Canada's external affairs at that time were handled by the imperial government in, in London. The reason I bring that up is because I reached out to my, my friend Richard Fung who had done a film on early Chinese migration called Dirty Laundry. And he had used a lot of moving image archive that he'd sourced from the National Archives in Ottawa. So he had it on tape. And, and I said, I've got this, this reference to the, the Chinese experience. And the tape had been sitting on my table for years. I had reached a point where I thought I couldn't do this film. It had been five years of hitting a wall and... And I just thought, I just can't do this. It's it's just impossible. I was talking to another friend on the phone and I had just got that three-quarter inch tape transferred to VHS at the time. That's that's the way we would look at tapes. And I was scanning it on the phone. Suddenly, these, these shots of troops with fixed bayonets and ammunition marching through the streets of Vancouver appeared. And I know it was the only time that has happened was when uh, in the final days of an attempts were made to, to push away the Komagara Maru and two uh, Canadian regiments were mobilized in Vancouver and they put up the show of force. They marched through the streets to show the public the, their resolve and they were ready to, to attack the passengers on the ship who had become very defiant by that point. And I think as I recognized this, and I, was, I just thought to myself, okay, this is that day. And, and I, my thought was going to come to my mind that 
the ship must they must have filmed the ship in as i was thinking that the ship appears <laughs> and it was <laughs> it was this incredibly i was just stunned and i told my friend i've i've got to stop so i put the phone down and i watched this i remember i had chills i had goosebumps and i kept thinking this is I, i don't know how this is happening i re and that section lasts only about just under 2 minutes i rewound it back watched it again and i literally started crying <laughs> i i it was for two reasons one i had found this something that and you know watching that as a moving image is radically different from watching still images it it literally come makes the moment come alive and i also knew that there was no going back for me that i had to finish the film some way and you know since then i've been working i've been passionate about what is there in the archive and what is not what is collected what is not collected these the this collection the 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 reason this footage was there and it, that it was randomly put into a reel it was a reel of basically clips from vancouver that had been salvaged by collectors and archivists that had all been spliced together in a truly random order uh, with no relationship to each other but just belonging to a certain period from uh, say 1910 to uh, or 1912 to 1922 in that 10 year period and this footage was there and it was completely it was not cataloged as being this there was not even a keyword nothing yeah and and finally it it led to me finishing that that film in that film you also go to the headquarters of the gadar party as well how was that experience for you i actually didn't go to the gadar party headquarters till after the film i because i again i was working on a limited budget so but i use a lot of the gadar party you know paraphernalia the newspapers which were published both in gurmukhi and in urdu i mean most people forget that urdu was not just used by the few muslim families that we hear but uh many people in punjab the province of punjab in in the in british india was a was in fact a muslim majority province and the the language of instruction uh, in schools was urdu so most if not all sikhs knew also knew how to read urdu but i went to the gadar party uh, headquarters in 2005 when my film played at a punjabi festival in yuba city in uh, in california and there was a wonderful uh, librarian in university of california davis campus punjabi who had been creating a a web page a very rough web page on pioneer six and it was with him i went to to san francisco to the to the library of so the indian government now holds the building so you have to go to the indian consulate to get access to go into the gadar party headquarters and it was fascinating to see what they were reading everything from basic english there were there were instruction books on how to use guns <laughs> there were book books on world affairs 
And that was a that was a really interesting and, and a profound, again, a very moving experience. Uh, in each of your films, and the next one I'm going to bring up is Random Acts of Legacy, is that you, you know, you begin a project, you have a certain type of idea, and then it's just, you know, the process of research, or there's a moment at which something gets stuck, because I think as with all documentary filmmakers, when you begin a project to where you end up, you're not quite sure where that's going to take you. And the research process can shape that on the case of continuous journey of finding this footage that opens up a new avenue. Could you talk a little bit about random acts of legacy? Because it, it, it begins with accessing a, a kind of archive and in, in trying to understand what it is. Yeah. And that's dire- actually directly linked to my finding this footage, <laughs> because what what the Komagaramaru moving image find suggested to me that there were that there might be other moving image documentation of communities of color that is not seen. And the second question it raised is why why isn't there docu- other documentation of of people of color in in the archives, both in Canada and the US? As part of the process of, of making Continuous Journey, I had been buying home movies f- on eBay because it was a way of creating moving images of that time and using them in different ways, which was far cheaper than getting images from commercial libraries, which, you know, you end up paying as filmmakers, you pay some, something like $60, $60 a second if you're lucky. <laughs> And the costs add up very, very rapidly. So I would often scan through eBay and suddenly this I noticed that this somebody was selling a lot of 16 millimeter rolls and they'd put out a, a, an image of what was there in one of the frames. And it was this incredibly, impeccably well-dressed Chinese couple in Banff, she was wearing a full-length mink fur coat and he was wearing a double-breasted suit and a hat. There was a kind of a cognitive dissonance for me looking at that images because it didn't fit with the, with the whole Chinese experience in, the, in, that, in that time. Because remember, it, the Chinese Exclusion Act is still in force till 1948. And the Chinese, like the South Asians, don't have the right to vote. And therefore, the lack of franchise prevents people from getting into any professional career, becoming lawyers or even going to university. So how did this wealthy couple come about? And then the, then the, the seller said, I had an exchange with him. He said, oh, by the way, I have a name. There's a name on, on the package. And this was shocking to me because, of course, I searched the name. And the name was Silas Fung. And Silas Fung was an avid collector based out of Chicago, of the Chicago's World's Fair paraphernalia. And he'd set up his own private museum. So, <laughs> very eccentric man. And and he, he then moved that museum to Florida. And there was a Chinese American museum in Chicago that had hosted his daughter a few years earlier. I just said to the to the seller and at that time you could do that can I just buy the whole lot you just name a price to me this is belongs to a family and I want to retain 
retain it as uh I, I it was a I spent over I think it was a couple of thousand dollars I sent to him sight unseen outside the framework of of eBay think all fingers and toes crossed thinking I'll get something he did send me the footage which was a relief but the footage was badly damaged that little detail I didn't know and that prevented me from scanning it it took me about 7 years to find someone who would scan it and then i tracked down the daughter I remember you yeah. saying something last time which is the the secret to cleaning up the film you have to mention that because it's sort of there's there's technical expertise and things but there's also all sorts of work around you can do there's all sorts of work around so the, the, there were two things happening with the film one was it was water damage second was that it had been sitting in probably a place that was too warm or or, or too hot in a room that was hard so the film was warped the emulsion was was um, and it had shrunk in many cases the emulsion was was coming off so the the frames were disappearing and it was degrading so when when 16 mm film starts it's made out of acetate acetate when it when it's oxidized turns into acetic acid which is vinegar so you have this thing called the vinegar syndrome when you open a can of film that's deteriorating is like you're hitting hit by this overpowering vinegar smell so this retired engineer came to us at york and said you know he's developed this way of of scanning films i said my film no one is able to scan this can you scan it he he took on the challenge and he managed to scan it so i said to him how did you do this he said oh i i soaked it in a in a pail of wd40 <laughs> which which seemed like a completely odd thing i it made no sense to me it seemed so peculiar and so left field but later i i i was talking to a film conservator and he said oh yeah we used to use that because wd40 its initial use was to was to ensure that rubber retained its its elasticity so we would if film was starting to get warped or it was too dry we would treat it with wd40 and to 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 bring back its its elasticity but that that saved me so in in a way all those imperfections i i fully embraced them so from that point on it was like okay bring on the imperfections and let's let's work with them So you have the film you were able to access the footage and so begins the process of the documentarian slash private investigators to piece this story together and where did it where did it lead you Well I mentioned that the Chinese American Museum had done this commemoration of Silas Fung and they had invited his daughter So I I called the 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 curator and she was very protective she said you know Irina is 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 in her in her 70s who are you it seemed like this out of the blue there's this guy from canada who's originally from india wanting to talk to silas fung's daughter so she put me finally i spoke to irena and the daughter and so we in these home movies we watched the the, the family unit which is silas uh, his wife and the two offspring uh, irena and her younger brother daniel and Irina revealed to me she's the only survivor that that Danny had passed away and so she said to me if you want if you want to know who those chinese looking people are 
you better come right now. I'm 79, you know. <laughs> and the idea then became, again, I was doing this in a very small budget. I would show that I would screen the film for her as I had done to Jeff in, in Shooting Indians when I had screened him the rough cut. So I, I, I drew from that experience and I would get her to narrate what we were seeing. And that's what we did. And she was the one who pieced together the family story. And it's a story that's completely outside the experience of the known Chinese, Canadian and American experiences of working outside professions and having modest lifestyles at best. This family was became incredibly wealthy because Silas, uh, Silas's wife became an insurance agent, one of only two insurance agents for a Canadian insurance company and sold insurance to the Chinese community uh, because they trusted her. She, they could, she could speak to them in Cantonese and Toysonese. And she got very wealthy. And the family eventually moved to a, the wealthiest area of Chicago. And Irene re revealed to me one of the neighbors were the Rumsfelds, as in Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> so that's that's the kind of level of economic success they, the family achieved. Now, the film that you screened last year at Doc's uh, Beyond Extinction, Cynic's Resurgence, once again, this was a, a film that you started in the 90s and, you know, fast forward almost, you know, 15, 17 years. 27 years. Yeah, yeah, 27, sorry. Yeah, 27 <laughs> years, my numbers are off. And I, I think if I remember correctly from last year is that, you know, after you had won the Governor General's Award, you had run into some people together and you had re-seen the footage and you came back to it. Once again, which seems to be a, a recurring theme in your process of filmmaking. Well, you know, it's, it, I realize I've got my own archive. <laughs> and I've, I've at times documented people that, you know, who I found interesting and important. And it, it comes from my own experience of recognizing the value of moving image documentation. You know, I, I did an interview with my maternal grandmothers just a year before she passed, and that that's such a precious uh, artifact for the family. So, my friend Zul Suleiman, who's a who's a lawyer, uh, immigration and refugee lawyer, had in Vancouver had revealed to me that, and he just started his practice then. In and he said, you know, I have this interesting case. There's a guy who's going to be deported, and I said, okay, that's not new. This is what you do. This is part of your work is to stop deportations for refugees and and other people. And he said, no, 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 but he says that you can't deport me because I'm indigenous. And the immigration authorities in response say, say to him, that might be so, but your people were declared extinct. So therefore you cannot be an recognized as, as an Aboriginal person of Canada and you're American, so you have to go back. So it was such a, again, a bizarre and chilling story uh, the chilling part was this idea of extinction, that the government actually had an official declaration of extinction for the Sinaixt in 1956. Zul, who was again very professional and very protective about his clients, finally put me in touch with Marilyn James, who was their spokesperson, who, with whom I spoke for several uh, months, uh, had conversations with her. I hadn't finished shooting Indians, I hadn't, hadn't start, restarted shooting Indians with Jeff, so but I still had this deep understanding of the experience, both from shooting Indians and from for my experience with Forgotten Warriors, shooting this film for Loretta Todd. And Marilyn said, look, if you're really committed, come to our Thanksgiving gathering. 
So I went to the National Film Board in Toronto. They gave me some money. And I said to them, you know, I, and it was for an initially investigative st- stage that normally you just do a little written, written report for to convince them there's a story. So I said, I want to shoot this. So we, and this was the days of Betacamp tape. Each tape costs, I don't know, $60. So we didn't have the money. So I got old tapes, decided not to fly to, to Castlegar from Vancouver, drove with a young sound recordist from Vancouver, spent four days there, which were, again, just a turning point and transformative point in my life. I was received with, because of my connection with Zul and my the trust that I had won with uh, with Marilyn, I was just I was just received with complete warmth and and such love and generosity. It was amazing, and that experience. The film I couldn't couldn't get the money to finish the film or move ahead with the film. But again, like with shooting Indians, I held on to the footage. When I got the GG in, in 2019, it comes with the cash award. So I thought, okay, I'm going to put the money off the crown to push back against the crown. Uh, and that's how I restarted the project, then got a completion grant from the Canada Council and the film was finished. And you had a chance to do a screening back in the community? Well, the commitment I had made to myself. So part of the way I work, I call it relational filmmaking. And and I do two things as part of the process. One, I show people when I'm in the final stages of the edit, I'll show them to get feedback. And the second thing I do is is to try and take, take the film back to the community. Uh, so we did that with Jeff and we took the film back to Six Nations and I told Marilyn that as soon as it premieres at Doxa, we'll we'll come to the Sinaiks Tamula or the Sinaiks traditional territory. And we did five screenings, uh, starting in this tiny community called Nakas, which is on, on the top of the, the Arrow Lakes, to we screened at Nelson, Castlegar, Trail, and Valakan. And the issue of the Sinaiks is so contentious and fraught in that region that it gave an opportunity for Maryland to show the settler communities, even those who were supporters and non-supporters, really the the counter-narrative to the narrative they've been fed. And and because the elders that had filmed in 95 have all passed away. So for people who had only recently come on side with the Sinaiks or who were curious and wanted to know more, it came as a shock to them that these the struggle of the Sinaiks goes back to the late 80s. And that Eva Orr, who was the matriarch who started the, 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 the protest and the resurgence of the Sinaiks, had also done an interview with me that was completely unambiguous in terms of how the history of the movement started. In the film, uh, there's also this archival footage about the movement of a burial ground in the states that relates to the nation. I wonder if you can describe that piece as well. It's very poignant in the in the film. Yeah, so again, archive becomes really important in, in a film like this. And again, so I started searching for archive. If there was any, anyone had made films in that region. I looked through the public archives. Uh, there was nothing. And then, of course, YouTube has become such a <laughs> incredible repository. And so what happened was that the in the 40s, the, the U.S. constructed a large dam on the Columbia River. 
the Columbia River starts in Sinaiq's territory in the Arrow Lakes. And the Columbia River is central to not just the Sinaiq's, but a number of Inner Salish communities. Uh, that for them, the river was, was where they got their food from. They were salmon people and was sacred to them. And so all the, the, the region around the, the Columbia are traditional village sites. And with traditional village sites, there are burial grounds. And the U.S. recognized that these village sites and, and more importantly, the burial grounds were going to be submerged because of this large, uh, the Grand Coulee Dam. And what they had done was they commissioned uh, the, the Department of Interior that was building the dam. They came up with this idea. Someone came up with this idea. Let's call an undertaker <laughs> to, who, has to, who, who knows how to deal with, with bodies and the bones uh, and, and get them to m- move that, move the burial grounds to a high, to, and basically save the, the remains. And this undertaker then in turn must have been a huge lucrative contract commissioned someone to do a film about this. And in the film, you see uh, members of the Colville Confederated Tribes, which includes the Sinaiks, whose communities were, the, whose burial grounds are being submerged. The elders were the ones who told the undertaker, the funeral home director, where the, where the sites were. And they sat and watched as the bones were removed and then put into new coffins to be reburied. You know, when I came across that footage, it was just like, this was, it was just so powerful. And it just, in a way, visually showed what many of these fights are about. You know, Oka started because of a burial ground, if you remember. And we reached out to the the person who'd made the film, who's still alive. But unfortunately, they don't have the 60, it was shot on 16 millimeter. So in those days, transferring it to video was the end goal. And then people often got rid of the got rid of the sixteen millimeter, so we had this very degraded copy. But it's good enough. So for me, uh, you know, I embrace imperfection because it's it's just it's a patina, and it shows where the film or the the photograph has been, how it's been handled or mishandled, not looked after or looked after or conserved. All those things also. Uh, telegraph to the audience a different subtext. Yeah, so I'm glad you you asked me, you remember that moment because uh, a number of people have said to me that's that it stays with them. You know, a thing in cinema, one of the favorite axioms about cinema is that the cinema is the reaction of the of the reaction shot. And so in in this in the sequence that you see in the film, you have these elders sitting there intercut with the skeletal remains being taken out, then laid out on the ground next to the new coffins, and then the coffins being piled up. It, it says everything about colonial relationships. And it, it comes often comes as a surprise to people that the Americans did this and the Canadians did not. Ali, teaching at, at York, you know, I'm also based out of the School for Contemporary Arts where we have a, a film program. I'm wondering what your advice to students is these days in terms of how to maintain a kind of persistence as a filmmaker, given the challenges of financing, the durational quality of making work. And also, I guess, how does an artist uh, 
documentary filmmaker maintain their autonomy under the conditions that you're working in. You, you certainly in your film, you have an autonomous bravery and audacity in how you're working and how the story gets told. And it's something that's um, hard to, to teach people, but I'm wondering how you think that through or how you try to transmit that to future filmmakers. Well, it's very kind of you to say <laughs> this bravery. Well, it, you know, I think you can only teach. I can talk about it, but they have to live it. I, mean, I think, or they have to feel it in, in, in the work that's screened for them. A choice that I made very early on was that that autonomy was very important to me. You know, making continuous journey was, was a nightmare because of that position. And, you know, after I found, I told you, after I found that footage, I said the film has to be made. So I had got grants from the arts councils, which are in the, in the nature of filmmaking, they're, they're, it's very small money, particularly in the early 2000s or earlier. So I went to TVO. So TVO came, came on board and they came on board very reluctantly. And the, the commissioning editor, or in fact, he was the director of, of documentary programming then, a man called Rudy Boutignol, who then became the CEO of Knowledge Network. And then a couple of years ago, he was let go because of the lack of representation. And that's an important aspect in, in, the, in my exchange with him. He was very reluctant to film. I had gone to him for, I think, six years. The seventh year when I went to him, he said, I've been asked by the CEO to diversify. So we're doing history now. So yeah, your project is... I, I'm interested in this project. So he'd been compelled to do this project. But the discussions were very tough and in a way traumatizing for me. Uh, it, and they took a toll. One of the things I do in the film is speak about the resonance of this, of this past, how it manifests in the present. And one of the ways the continuous journey uh, regulation continues to manifest to this day is through the Safe Third Country Agreement. The Continuous Journey Regulation, which did not mention race, but was applied only to South Asians, says that to come to Canada as an immigrant, you had to come from your country of birth or nationality. So there was a ship, Canadian Pacific ran a ship between Calcutta and Vancouver. It was a very lucrative line for them. The feds forced Canadian Pacific to stop that line. Right. So now it became impossible to, for South Asians to come by continuous journey. They, they would have to go to either Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, no, basically Hong Kong or Japan to come to Canada. They were not coming by continuous journey, hence they were barred. The word race was not used. Today, the Safe Third Country Agreement requires refugee claimants to come directly to Canada if they want to have claim refugee status. If they come via the US, which is considered a safe third country, they have to seek uh, asylum in the US. Now, I hadn't made this connection. It was Audrey Macklin, who I interview in the film, who's one of Canada's foremost refugee scholars. And she, she poses a question. You know, I, I set up what the continuous journey regulation is, and I, I say exactly what I've just shared with you. And then Audrey comes on and says, you know, one has to wonder what the reasons for the safe third country agreement are. And I would, and she urges the audience to think through about the similarities and differences between the two. Well, this was unacceptable to Rudy. His directive to me was keep the past in the past. Don't 
you cannot bring it to the present. Not even don't bring it to the present. You cannot bring it to the present. And when I said this was non-negotiable, that this was a point of view documentary. And, and, and the point of view documentary is uniquely recognized in Canada as a genre for funding. And the slot I was making this film for, called A View From Here for TVO, was created specifically for point of view documentaries. And I always say that one of the reasons I, I use voiceover in my film is that people will understand where I, where I stand. I don't want to use, I don't want to take the position many filmmakers do. I'm a fly on the wall. I just, you know, document things as they're unfolding. It's utter bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it, you, by pointing a camera at someone with a particular kind of lens, you've made several choices, right? which is entirely, literally your point of view through the camera. Right there and then it begins. So when I didn't, when I refused to, to make these changes to the film, TVO pushed it out of the regular schedule so that nobody could find it. But before they did that, they had an option with the exercise with all white filmmakers I have to say is that they would show the film they would show the feature length version of the film and and they would often have discussions afterwards with the filmmaker and experts and there would be a call in from the audience you know this is the mandate of public broadcasters like TVO and knowledge the CEO of TVO at that time was 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 a hugely huge supporter of the film and, you know, I just felt I'm back on the ship. <laughs> like the, 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 the journey continues with my experience. I can, I can get to this highly prestigious slot, but not really. I, I, I'm not allowed to, to screen as everybody else has. And I'm shut off from, from the audience of the film in a deliberate act of sabotage. Uh, simply to because the, the film makes a lot of white people very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable, even to this day. And the only letter that, that was sent to me by Rudy, there was a, um, there's a white supremacist group around immigration. Of course, they railed against the film. So he sent, forwarded me that email and said, you have to respond to this. <laughs> I said, No. <laughs> No, I, I know who these people are. They're white supremacists. It, I was just jaw-dropping that it's one thing to share, saying that, you know, we've received this comment. But it's another thing to demand a response to an overtly white supremacist email. So in terms of keeping my autonomy, I, I've decided that working with broadcasters is very, very difficult. And, and it's, it's uh, you know, TVO, and then I had a similar experience with CBC. It, it pushed me into recognizing that this was taking a, a, a massive toll on me. The, the stress and the, everything associated with it was too much. That's when I chose to, to go into academia. But I also chose to make films on very small budgets. So I, I make films with the Arts Council. So the Canada Council has been central in my work. Their funding has been absolutely essential, not only allowing me to create the work, but to literally retain my voice, right? And, and, and yes, have complete autonomy. And it's, it's a system that at times can be... It's not that I've, I've also been turned... Like for being... <laughs> 
for for the current film that I'm working on, I've been turned down three times. I was also turned down after I won the Governor General's Award. So it's not that that anything is guaranteed. You're being judged by a jury of your peers. You're being judged in a pool that you don't know what what you're up against. I've been on jury, so I know that. But it's it's not a single gatekeeper, right? It's not a so when you have power invested in gatekeepers, they become exactly the same as they exercise and they enact the tyranny of immigration officers <laughs> who are the gatekeepers to the country yeah i could go on on that issue but but the it's to it's to just bypass that kind of gatekeeping that i've chosen to this this path of of working with small budgets and and retaining full control um ali is there anything you'd like to add or maybe share about um, projects you're working on now I've been trying to make a film about my uh, my maternal grandfather who was and this time I'm going to my own personal history who was one of uh, India's first Olympians and uh, he represented India in tennis in the 1924 Paris Olympics he was one of eight Olympians who represented India for the first time separate from a comp- British empire team it was a British India team and he'd gone on scholarship to cambridge where on a sports scholarship which was this unique rare thing but he had interesting experiences around race and i and i'm privy to this not because of family stories because nobody knows these stories when i was 17 i had asked my my grandmother for his scrapbook and even as a 17 year old i was fascinated with historical artifacts and that's in that scrapbook in the cuttings i found a story that he was that he'd been denied the captaincy of the cambridge tennis team because cambridge said gentlemen of color simply cannot lead and he had pushed back against it so i'm trying to explore that chapter and 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 flesh out what it meant to be an athlete in in colonial times and then in post colonial india what what happened to him Ali, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. I feel like I could talk to you for another hour or so, but thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Always a pleasure, and it really is a treat to talk to you. And and thank you for having me on the show. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our episode with Ali Kazmi. Head to the show notes to learn more about the films and resources mentioned in the show. You can follow us on social media at sfu_voce to keep up to date on new podcast releases. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.